The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. This morning we're going to be in Hosea chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Hosea chapter 7. And chapter 7 is actually only 16 verses. We'll be looking at that whole chapter today in a sermon that I've entitled, The Illusion of Secret Sin. And I want to explain that a little bit. There is no such thing as secret sin. We can keep it secret from people, but we can't keep it secret from God. So saying that we have... Uh, a sin that nobody knows about, it's, that's really false. It's, a, it's an illusion because God knows everything. God sees everything. In fact, we're going to see in just a moment how where we left off last week in our scripture in chapter 6 and where we left off with that message, it's going to almost pick up uh, with a little overlap today. Uh, we'll be beginning with the same principle that we left off with last week. And so to do that, let me just tell you uh, a brief story from my childhood that uh, I look back on now and I think it's funny, but it wasn't so funny when it happened. So I was 13 years old and uh, my father had an old Cadillac that he had um, gotten as a kind of a hand-me-down from his father and it was a 1972 uh, Sedan DeVille, and it was long. It was like a boat, a boat with a motor and four tires, and um, big car but big motor, and it would it would uh, it would go pretty fast. And um, so there was this one particular evening that I found myself at home alone. My parents had somewhere to be. And my sister, I don't even remember what she was doing, but she wasn't there. It was just me at the house. And uh, my parents had gone in my mother's car, and so my father's keys were on his dresser. You see where this is going? So I thought it would be a fun thing to do to go get the keys. And I'm, before I say this, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think the statute of limitations on driving without a license and driving underage, I believe that's exhausted by now. Because this is 30, over 35 years ago, so I'm pretty sure I'm good. I uh, can't be prosecuted for this now. But I, I got the keys to this Cadillac, and it was about, I don't know, 8 o'clock at night. And so I, I went outside and cranked it up. Oh, it sounded so good when it cranked up, too, that big motor just you know making that noise. And uh, I got in, backed out, pulled out the driveway. And from where I lived at the time... It was um, it was just a short trip up to the interstate uh, off of Highway 6 in Lexington out to I-20. But right before you get out there, if you're familiar with that area at all, there's uh, there used to be the Glassmaster Boat Company out there on the frontage road on I-20. And uh, so I turned on the frontage road and curled around. John's RV used to be out there. They've moved since, but... Uh, that's where that was. So I went out this frontage road, and it curved around, and then it curved again. Then it ran parallel with the interstate, and it was a long straightaway, probably a mile and a half or more. And so I thought, you know, this is a big car with a big motor. 
you know, it's a Cadillac, even though it's older, so it probably rides real nice. So I said, let's see how fast this car will go. So I'm 13 years old at night by myself in the Cadillac, and I put the foot to the floor, and that speed, old speedometer, you know, with the, the red pin, and it's going like this, and uh, I watch, I'm, I'm both hands on the wheel, you know, I'm concentrating real good, and I go, I probably hit about 115, almost 120, and then I let off the gas, because, you know, the road's going to end here pretty, pretty soon, so it gets to the end, I turn around, I said, well, that was fun, I think I'll do it again, so I came back the other way, foot to the floor, 120 miles an hour, I slow down, I come back around the curve, come back out to Highway 6, back down uh, the next few minutes back to my house. Now, I thought I had just had the most fun time ever. Uh, nothing had happened. I didn't wreck. I didn't get pulled over. You know, everything about what I was doing was illegal, but it, it, was, it was a secret that had been completely kept. And so I'm coming down this last hill to my house, and all that's left to do is to cross over a little bridge and come around a curve, and then there's my driveway. So I thought, I've made it. I'm here, because at this point, I'm going to speed limit. You know, I'm not breaking any laws. And so I come around that curve. I get in sight of the driveway. And what do I see in the driveway? My parents' car. They had come home about 30 minutes early from where they were. And I realized then two things. One... I was caught, and two, I probably wasn't going to be able to sit down for about a week and a half because my father and I were going to have a chat that wasn't going to be a lot of words. And um, so that was, a, that was a difficult evening, the way it ended. It didn't end nearly as well as it began. But I thought I had kept a secret. I thought there was no way I was going to get caught. They were gone. Everybody was gone. weren't scheduled to be home for a, a good while. I was going to be home well before anybody would, would be there to catch me. And so I thought I had the perfect plan. And clearly, uh, God had other plans because he had my parents come home early. And you know why they came early? Because back in those days... When there was no cell phone, my mother had called the house to ask me a question, and I didn't answer the phone. And so then she waited a minute and called again, and I didn't answer the phone. And so, as mothers do, she, she started worrying. And so she convinced my father, we, we need to go home and, and check and see if anything's wrong. He, he might be hurt or something might have happened we better go check on him and so they came home to check on me and instead they caught me in my little my little sin so i tell you that story because it doesn't matter there's a principle there it doesn't matter how well thought out the plan may be it doesn't matter if we think we have considered every possible contingency God can do whatever he wants to do, and your plan can just be completely thrown to the wind in a heartbeat, and then there's consequences that will be suffered. So there is no such thing as secret sin. Last week, I closed with this quote, and I'm going to begin with it this week from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, one of sin's tragedies 
is that it causes us to think it can be hidden. Well, it cannot. God reminds us that it is ever before Him. The only escape from judgment for sin is a true repentance and turning to God for salvation through the death of Christ. That's the only escape. That's the only solution for our sinfulness. So today we're going to look at some illustrations that God gives to Hosea to tell the people and how they apply and how we can understand uh, it's always best to understand God knows, He sees, but He offers forgiveness. So let's read this text. First of all, Hosea chapter 7, beginning verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their wickedness they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princess became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven. They consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I'll bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They're like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword. Because of the insolence of their tongue, they will, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we might understand and obey for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Now this text is interesting because it's divided up into several illustrations to demonstrate the same principle. There is no such thing as secret sin. These people, God's people, have disobeyed, rebelled against Him, and yet their 
deluded in their thoughts to think, well, he, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he hadn't found out, and so maybe we're, we're going to be okay. And yet all the while, God says, I see everything. I hear everything. Why do you continue to disobey? You continue to rebel. So this first section here from verse 1 down to verse 7, the oven is hot, and there's several pieces to this puzzle. The oven is hot. God's healing of his people is prevented by their own sin. He's offering healing and forgiveness, yet they won't turn from their sin. The iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. Acts of adultery, spiritual or otherwise, are not innocent or harmless acts between consenting adults like our society would have us to believe. They're actually passions inflamed by sin that eventually destroys the ones affected by them. James Boyce is correct when he assesses them in that way. Evil deeds of Samaria, they deal falsely. There's thievery. There's bandits that are raiding outside. You just read down, just in verse 1, all that is contained between Ephraim and Samaria and the false dealings, the, the thievery and the, the bandits raiding and the iniquities are being uncovered. All the sins are being laid out before God. They don't realize that God remembers their wickedness. Now, let me pause right there for a moment because doesn't our Bible tell us that God casts our sin uh, as far away as the east is from the west? And in another place of Scripture, uh, the Bible says that He throws our sins in the sea of forgetfulness, right? Doesn't that what, isn't that what the Bible says? So, so why, is, why is this text telling us that, verse 2, I remember all their wickedness. Why is that? Well, there's just one simple piece of that equation that's missing. There's been no, no repentance, no confession, no humility, no, Lord, I've sinned against you, please forgive me, because if we would just do that, He will do those things. He will take our sin as far as the east is from the west. He'll throw them in the sea of forgetfulness. He'll remember them no more, and we'll be forgiven. But the problem is... Forgiveness is available, but it's not automatic. Is God gracious and merciful and loving and kind and forgiving? Absolutely. He's all those things. But you can't just snap your fingers and say, oh, well, God will cover that. It'll be all right. No. It's, it's a response. God's waiting for our response of humble repentance, conviction of sin that, that we're ignoring. So the leadership here in the text, the leadership seems to have no problem with the sins of the people. Because the Bible says here in uh, verse 3 and even beyond, their wickedness makes the king glad. Their lies make the princes glad. If you can imagine, well, it might not be that much of a stretch in our current culture, but all the dishonesty and sinfulness Seems like everybody's okay with it, like it's no big deal, right? What is something we hear from a young age sometimes uh, when, when we don't tell the truth, but it's not some major thing? What, what, is, what is it that people say? Oh, that's, that's just a little white lie. It's all right. It's just a little white lie. What does that even mean? It's a lie. It's, it's dishonesty. But we try to rationalize it and say it's not that big a deal. We categorize our sins when all sin is reprehensible before God, because He's holy. 
The people are also involved in all kinds of adultery. And this is this first um, oven imagery that the Bible gives us here. The people involved in adultery, they're like an oven heated by a baker. It's so hot that it doesn't need to be stirred all night. The king and the princes got drunk with wine. They plotted the, they, they plotted the assassination of the king, and their anger smoldered all night long, just anticipating the deed that they had planned to, to, to carry out. The rulers are consumed. The kings have fallen. And yet, in verse 7, Still, no one bothers to call on the Lord. All the things they've done, all the evil plans they've made, everything, if you wrote a list of it, it would just be almost exhaustive. All the things that these folks and their leadership have done that have been contrary to to God's teaching, and yet through all this, they still refuse, verse 7, none of them calls on me. After all this, none of them calls on the Lord. The second uh, illustration that he gives in verses 8 through 10 is a cake that's half-baked. God's people have mixed themselves with pagans. So if you look at the text here, it says Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. That's what's called, uh, I just want to, let me put it in in today's terms. I just want to blend in. I just want to be a part of things. I just want everybody to like me. Can I just say, as lovingly as I can can say, and I want you to listen carefully to what to what I'm going to tell you. To the degree we blend in with the world, and there is no longer a distinction between us and the world, that is the same degree to which we have strayed from the ways of our Lord. Did you realize we're not supposed to fit in with this world? This world is broken and sinful. This world, this culture we live in is following the devil. Is that really what we want to blend in with? If we're really God's people, do we want to blend in with a world that hates God? I hope not. We don't want, we want to be different. That's kind of the whole point, is to set yourself apart. Be different for Jesus. Let people see the fact that you follow Jesus. You're not like the rest of the world. That's kind of the whole point of living a Christian life, is being different, distinct, unmixed, Paul would say in Second Corinthians, unmixed with the world. Now, does that mean we stay away from the world? Well, no, that would be kind of hard to complete the Great Commission if we weren't ever around people in the world. The point is, we have to be insulated, not isolated. We have to be covered up with Jesus. So when we do venture into the world and try to share his love with people, we're not adversely affected by all the sin around us, right? We're trying to influence the world. We're not trying to be influenced by the world. That's kind of the whole point. So this cake being half-baked, God's people being mixed with the pagans, they're unaware that their strength has left them. You know what that reminds me of? Go back to the book of Judges and read the story of Samson 
And when he was deceived by Delilah and, and the, his hair was cut, and he, the Bible says in Judges, I believe, uh, let me see, I got the reference here, Judges 16, verse 20, he was unaware that his strength had left him. Why did his strength leave him? Because he had left God. Same thing here. The people are unaware that their strength has left them. They're unaware that their time is short. So when the Bible says in verse 9, gray hairs have come on them and they don't even realize it. They don't see it. Strangers devour their strength. They don't, they don't know it. So these things are happening, but they're unaware because they're too proud to return to the Lord their God and to seek his face. G. Campbell Morgan says, There is no condition more perilous to our highest well-being than this of unconscious decadence. We're not even aware of the sinfulness in our lives. There's no conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's no uh, drive or desire to seek the Lord and find forgiveness. Number three, the dove. The dove is our next illustration here, verses 11 and 12. Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. You know where this is illustrated to me? If anybody uh, here has ever sat in a dove field and hunted doves, then you probably know how this works. All you have to do is be reasonably still and have the right clothes on that blends in with a sunflower uh, stalk or a corn stalk, you know, nice little khaki brown, have a nice blend of clothes on, keep your face covered, and you might even get you a little uh, a dove decoy that's just a stick with a, a fake bird on it with wings that looks like they're flapping. You know, and all that, you know what, that, and just sit there still with your shotgun, just get ready, and here they come. Because you know what? They're just completely uh, oblivious to the fact that people out there might be shooting at them. They just see the sunflower seeds or the corn. They just see some brown top millet or something they want to eat, and they go to it. They're so silly. They have no sense. They just go straight into it. They fly right into the field where people are just going to be laying them down, hopefully, right? They're senseless. They're silly. They're they're too preoccupied with what they want that they don't see the impending judgment that's waiting for them. Does that make sense? So the Bible says, Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. So what are they doing? They're looking for outside help. Heaven forbid they go to the Lord. That's where they should be going. Go to God for help. But no, they're going to Egypt. They're going to Assyria. And that's not where they need to go. So God is going to chastise them. The Bible says he's going to catch them like birds in a net. All these things are pointing toward the same direction. The punishment or the judgment that happens because, not just because of sin, but because of a refusal to repent. A refusal to humble yourself and confess your sin, and heed the conviction of the Spirit, and go to God and receive forgiveness. That's what he's looking for, but the people are unwilling. Number four, the final uh, illustration here is in the last four verses, from verse 13 to verse 16. The bow is broken. The people have strayed 
from the Lord. So verse 13 says, Woe to them because they've strayed. They've rebelled against the Lord, so destruction is theirs. They've spoken lies against the Lord, so there's no redemption. You see that last sentence there in verse 13? What, is, what does God say? See, this is the, the ongoing refrain to this song. I would redeem them, but they just they won't come to me. They won't uh, cry out to me. They speak lies against me instead. So all three statements in verse 13. Woe to them because they've strayed. Destruction is theirs because they've rebelled. They receive no redemption because they speak lies against the Lord. The people don't cry out to the Lord from their heart. Instead, they turn away from Him. The Lord trained them. He gave them strength, and yet they devised evil against Him. You see in verse 15, the people do not look up to God despite their many needs. You know, we've discussed this before. When things go wrong, when things in your lives may be extra challenging or extra difficult, where's the first place we should go? We should run to God. We should be anxious to get to the church house where we can fellowship with God's people and be encouraged. But what happens? The very place we need to go is the last place we want to go. We're so fooled into maybe it's embarrassment or shame or maybe we just uh, want to keep everything a secret. The first place we need to, to be going is to God. And yet that's the last place we go. Despite our many needs, just like the people of Israel. <clears throat> Verse 16 says, They turn, but not upward. Not to the Most High God. So they are like a bow that is warped, and so is incapable of shooting straight. See, when the, when the bow is deceitful or, or curved or warped. It's got to maintain a particular shape to get the result we're looking for. And the Bible said the people are like a bow that's warped. It can't shoot straight anymore. So they're left defenseless. Their princes are going to fall by the sword. Their destruction is sure because of their indignation toward God. And if you think about it, in all these things, God is the one person who is, is offering help. They can't get assistance anywhere else. So the, the only source of help is the one that they're indignant with. That's the one they're lying about, the one they're rebelling against, straying away from, the one place they could go to be healed. And that's the one they don't want anything to do with. This, folks, is the power of deception that is found in sin. It will have us believe that we can't go to the one place we have to go. 
when there's sinfulness, when there's struggle, when there are challenges and obstacles and terrible circumstances, the one place we have to go is to Jesus. That's the only place we can go. But this is what happens when we don't do that. Destruction. No redemption. No help. We're defenseless. Robert Chisholm said, The people's widespread deceit and robbery epitomized their lack of regard for their covenant with the Lord. You know, if we would just stop and think for a moment, what has God done for us? Has He shown Himself to be faithful? Has He shown Himself to be trustworthy? And then has He shown Himself to be gracious and merciful and kind, forgiving, patient? He's demonstrated all these things and more over and over again. So what is our only solution? What's the the only thing that's keeping us from receiving the healing we desperately need? It's repentance. It's humble repentance. And repentance is not just, well, I'm sorry, God. I won't do it again, I promise. No, repentance is deep conviction, it's humility, it's confession, but then it's turning. That's what the word means, repent, is to turn. We turn away from sin, we turn toward Jesus. We change our direction and we run as fast as we can to get to Jesus. And the the thing is about that when we turn around here's the most delightful surprise we'll find the only reason we are farther and farther away from Jesus is because we moved he never did when we turn around and go back to him we'll find that he is closer than we ever imagined Because he's been pursuing us the whole time we've been running away from him. He's been running after us. Waiting. Just turn to me. Just confess your sins. You'll find that forgiveness. You'll find the healing you desperately search for. You'll find that restoration that you need. We just have to turn and repent and run to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.